Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Hi, Nizar. Hello. We, we've got a big topic today, don't we? Yeah, I'm excited about this. We're going to be talking about Rafiq Hariri as a man, as a political figure, and his legacy. So quite a lot of interesting things to cover today. But first, of course, we have to get to the news. And we don't have like light news this week, unfortunately. We have a series of like really heavy things. Uh, and the first one being a a father up near Tripoli self-immolated and died basically over a, a payment issue at his daughter's school. So this man, his name is uh, George Zre, uh owed the school money. And according to Zre's brother, the school was refusing to release transcripts for the daughter. So the father wanted to move his daughter to a public school because he couldn't afford the private school anymore. But the school was not allowing that to happen, allegedly. And and so because of this, he had this argument with the principal. Uh, he said, I'm going to come over and light myself on fire. And then he did. Bystanders put him out, rushed into the hospital in Tripoli, but he ended up dying the next day, of course. You know, the sad part about this story, apart from how tragic it is, is that this kind of blackmailing that happens of students of uh, students who cannot pay their tuition fees is so common across private schools. In my school, it used to happen like they used to give us our grades for every three months, you know, every uh, trimester. And then the students who don't give, who, whose parents haven't paid the tuition, they don't get their grades. Something very, very common. A lot of people are sharing their stories ba- after this happened. And this ca- provoked a lot of outrage. Um, by the way, there was a protest yesterday on Friday in front of the education ministry. And then there is another protest at 9 a.m. on Monday by uh, the an organization that mobilizes the parents of uh, children in private schools against, uh, you know, the education ministry allowing the, such things to happen. Which, by the way, we should note that the ministry said that it was not even aware of this situation, that if, if this situation does arise, it does get involved. But but obviously that, that didn't happen in this case. And as you say, there's also another backdrop to this story, uh, not just on the education angle, but also just on the like the economic angle. There's a lot of people who are not doing that well here in Lebanon, but at the same time, a lot of people feel as though they need to provide a private education for their children because uh, they feel that the public schools are not up to quality, not up to snuff. And so these dual factors of skyrocketing tuition at private schools, but also like a very weak economy and low wages. And it, low it, investments it, in education. Exactly, exactly. And, and poor public schools, etc. And so all of these factors combine to just sort of like a, a boiling point where an incident that is just so tragic like this actually can happen. Um, and, and that's not the only heartbreaking news that happened this week. Also, down in Marjayoun, um, an 11-year-old boy was found hanged in a, a Syrian refugee camp just on Friday. Uh, this is a Syrian boy from Idlib. Uh, initially, it was thought to be a suicide, right, because he was found hanged. Uh, but we're recording this on Saturday. Uh, and, and just today, it was reported that apparently his older brother, uh, was arrested for the crime uh, and uh, has allegedly confessed. Wow! So, so that is the the I think I think the the two really heavy stories of the week. Uh, both of them just absolutely tragic. Uh, but on to political news, something a little bit lighter. Uh, while Lee Jumblat. Yeah. So what happened is that there is this show on Al Jadid TV called Qadah Wajam, which is a a pun 
you know, because qadah wa dham is slander and defamation as used in, in legal texts. So this show showed a character that is basically a Druze person wearing something similar to what a Druze sheikh would wear and speaking with a typical Druze accent. And he said ridiculous things, you know, he was bragging about how powerful the, the Druze are or whatever, something like that. And then they showed him as being very afraid of, of something and needing a diaper and stuff like that. Something really ridiculous and bad humor aimed at mocking kind of these Druze supporters of Wari Jumblat who are always bragging about how they are so strong as, as, a, as a sect and as a bunch, etc. Anyway, it was taken as very offensive by lots of Druze people from all sides of the political spectrum. But the sketch also targeted Jumblad because this person, the character who was speaking, the character they are mocking, had a, Jumbl- a photo of Jumblad on his chest. So in response, a man um, who is reportedly a Drew's young religious man went next to the Ajadi TV station in Watan Side in Beirut near Kola roundabout and he threw a hand grenade at the TV station. Um, like no, no one was injured though. No one was injured. Um, anyway, Al Jadid is really well protected because of the all the attacks it has received from supporters of Amal mostly, but this time they have a new enemy. But Wali Jumlat did not take it uh, lightly because you know of the uproar in the Druze community. He threatened to sue because of the insult against him and threw him against the, the, the religious community. And a, a legal complaint was filed on Monday. But we have a much more interesting story about Jumlat also this week, right? Yeah, you you think that was the fireworks? No, no. The real fireworks and and the more political fireworks happened uh, regarding the cabinet formation, right? That we talked about last week. Uh, Well, cabinet's off to a bumpy start. Or it it got off to a bumpy start earlier in the week. Basically because Jimblat got in a war of words with Saad Hariri, the prime minister. Sunday and Monday, they were just going back and forth. It was mostly over Twitter uh, on Monday. Jumblat tweeted, they are blinded by money and governance. Not saying they, but we know what he meant by that. Hariri shoots back. If somebody believes his leadership allows him to walk all over the Lebanese citizen, this will not happen. Jumblat, coming back to him, makes this mocking tweet, calling Hariri his majesty, who gets angry very quickly. Of course, Hariri doesn't let this go. And says, oh, tweeting doesn't form policies. There's a huge blow up between two allies, basically, in most of the time. Or a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, it escalated in, in such a petty way. I didn't expect it. But we should mention that it started, and we mentioned this last week, when like this tension started kind of when Jumblat said, oh, you formed the government. I didn't know what happened in the hidden meeting, secret meeting between uh, Hariri and Basil in, in Paris. So Jumblat said that he didn't know the government would be formed the next day. And then after that, these tensions continued. Like, yeah, and, and like he clearly feels or, or he felt like he was being cut out of the decision making process with the government formation itself. And then also with the uh, ministerial statement, right, which they were talking about uh, earlier this week, which, which seems to be like somewhat accurate. There, There's clearly like this sort of hurry basile deal, I, I think, uh, underpinning the government. Uh, with the acquies- acquiescence of, of a lot of the other parties, right? Yeah. That, 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 that's how I read it, at it least. seems so, yeah. So we have these these two guys going at each other, but Nasrallah spoke on Monday night, and he even he sort of like he weighed in, and he said, hey, let's not fight. We've got lots and lots of work to do. Um, side note, uh, Nasrallah spoke twice this past week. He also spoke on Wednesday, and he said that Lebanon should get air defense equipment from Iran, not for Hezbollah, but for the Lebanese army. 
the argument is, oh, why should we get all of our weapons from the West? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always been like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, Lebanon is too dependent on the Americans for weapons, so we should diversify our sources. Hezbollah pushes for more Iran-related, and other people are saying maybe Russia, etc. But it's always been the, like a very central debate. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, back to the the feud. Everybody seemed to sort of make up by midweek. And uh, the ministerial statement was agreed in, quote unquote, record time. I don't know if it was actually a record or not, but Nahar splashed it on their front page. There was a record uh, time that this was agreed in. So we basically had the committee meeting Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And in the full co- uh, cabinet, this was the committee to like write the ministerial statement that gets voted on by parliament. So the committee met Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then the full cabinet met Thursday up in Babda and they endorsed it. Uh, and so next week, Parliament's going to meet Tuesday and Wednesday to debate things and then give its confidence. Of course, the Parliament will vote to grant confidence to the government. There, there's no question about that. So what what is clear to us now that is that the deal for the ministerial statement was kind of made with the deal for the government, because otherwise they wouldn't just, you know, come up with all the solutions to disagreements in three days. So apparently they, they agreed on everything beforehand. Right, right. Uh, and... Uh, we haven't actually seen the official text or anything, but uh, we we you know know roughly what's in it. It talks about Paris Four reforms, of reducing the budget, reducing electricity subsidies, etc. Um, Hezbollah's arms. It it sort of uses the same uh, neutral formulation as last time. It talks about dis- disassociation from regional conflicts and for refugees. It doesn't reportedly. It does not say uh, anything about voluntary return or a political solution in Syria. But once we have the actual statement, we will come back to you uh, and and go through it and, and dissect it. Okay, and related to cabinet formation, I just want to note that there were ministerial handovers this past week. And, and there were two in particular that I just want to quickly highlight. One of them was the new interior minister, Rehafar al-Hassan, first woman interior minister in the Arab world. She started out on a really good foot. The, the barriers in front of the interior ministry are now gone. That happened, I guess, the day before she took over, technically, and then Mashnuk initially took credit for it, sort of, and then on the actual turnover, he said that it was because of her. I mean, clearly it was because of her, right? Yeah, he took credit for it, and he said, I ordered it because there was no longer the need for these security measures. And then he said it kind of as a joke, semi-sarcastically, during the ceremony, that it's actually, he made the decision based on her order. It was kind of a, a sexist joke. It was like, she kind of gave me the command to do it. And uh, this is, I'm saying just this for those people who are commenting on on my earlier statement. So his official statement was like, I did it, give me the credit. And then his comments at the ceremony were like, Khalas, if you want to give her the credit, then give her the credit, it's fine. I think that this, uh, this is very illustrative of who he who, is. who's going out and who's coming in at the ministry. <laughs> and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Hassan made some really nice remarks as well, though, like uh, saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to actually respect human rights. She made good comments about not bowing to clientelism, um, about combating domestic violence uh, and even electoral reform. Uh, so let's hope that she lives up to those words. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the, the other turnover that I want to mention is Fadiz Risati taking over from Tara al-Khatib at the Environment Ministry. And there was uh, <laughs> some symbology involved here. If you remember, there was a meme that was going around, uh, yeah. what, a few weeks ago? Like, so every time that the old minister would have somebody in his office, they would take the same picture, like in the, in the same seats. And there was this meme that showed 
these meetings like through time and there's a plant in the background that just kept on like wilting and dying away yeah with every photo it's it's dying more and more it's exactly and so the joke was like oh well Khatib can't even take care of the plant in his office you expect him to take care of the environment uh, <laughs> uh and and so when Zrisati came in he got a new plant and they took a picture <laughs> in the same chairs but with the new plant <laughs> he's like first achievement we changed the plant <laughs> yeah so I, I don't know maybe maybe he is very social media savvy uh so yeah we'll, we'll see what all happens with Jrisati and Hassan and all of these new ministers. But we got to get to our main topic today. And that is the man who is larger than life, Mr. Lebanon himself, Rafi Kariri. Let's do this. Yeah. So basically we want to take you through very quickly, just a summary of his life, what he did. And then we're going to talk about, well, why does that matter? And why, why does that make him Mr. Lebanon? Yeah. And I guess every part of the story can fit in the conclusion one way or another. Um, because he was a particular man in, in a lot of ways. Uh, Rafi Hariri did not come from any like old political family or rich family at all. Uh, he was the son of a, a farmer turned worker in Saida. And, and he was from a very modest background. When he was 20, he, he was at the Arab University in Beirut trying to go to college. But some people say that he couldn't afford it, so that he had to emigrate. Anyway, we know that at 20, he went to Saudi Arabia in 1964, 1965. Uh, he worked as a teacher for a bit and then he moved to the construction sector. And this is when he joined this field in which later he became a big icon. So some 10 or 12 years after he got involved in the in, in the sector, he got a contract to build a hotel in Ta'if in Saudi Arabia from King Fahd, from, from the royal family. And he built it so fast, although he used a lot of resources, but he built it really fast and in a way that impressed King Fahd a lot. And the story goes that after this, This kind of got him closer to the royal family in one way or another. And they gave him, they offered him the Saudi citizenship. So Hariri was a Saudi citizen. And for this project, he contracted the, comp the French company, Auger. And then after this contract, he made a lot of money. And he bought the company, Auger. He turned it into Saudi Auger. And then he started getting more and more contracts from the royal family to perform similar and big, big projects. And this is how he accumulated most of his original wealth. So very soon he had a lot of money. He um, started his uh, first charity association in Lebanon, what later became the Hariri Foundation. This foundation eventually gave 32,000 scholarships for university degrees here and abroad for a lot of students. Um, you know, among these students, some of my cousins, you know, a lot of people benefited not only from, you know, a certain sectarian community, but quite wider, but mostly uh, to Muslim Sunni young men and women who uh, were seeking higher education. But so far, we're just talking about a Saudi billionaire, a Lebanese Saudi billionaire who's, you know, doing some philanthropy. But his first big step into the political scene was in 1982, after Israel bombed West Beirut to kick out the Palestinian Liberation um, Organization forces from Lebanon. Hariri offered to clean up West Beirut. He brought in his company to kind of clean the rubble up and restore what, uh, what looks like a nice city. And some say that back then he started making plans of how to rebuild Beirut after the war ends and what he did apparently is that after he performed this cleanup of the city he convinced King Fahad of Saudi Arabia to fund it and to pay for it basically and to become the sponsor of this move yeah after he started the cleanup right yeah so we have the story of like originally the truck saying oh the cleanup courtesy Rafiq Hariri and then all of a sudden the trucks get a new slogan thank you King Fahad 
Yeah, which is a caricatural, but like very interesting, like, you know, uh, observation of how political sponsorship was brought in into something that was just, you know, an individual move originally by uh, just a billionaire who is also a philanthropist. So it shows us that he, what he was thinking is, I want to be Saudi Arabia's main guy in Lebanon. And, he, sh- and he showed the Saudi king that he was useful in the Lebanese context with this as well, right? Exactly. And after that, he started working closely with the royal family on things related to politics. I've read that he was in Bandar bin Sultan's team, uh, an advisor to him on uh, Lebanese affairs. And, you know, with all this accumulated wealth, there's a lot of stories of how he tried to use his wealth to influence things like when he's trying to mediate a conflict or to push for a certain political development, etc., that he was trying to use a lot of kind of bribing big officials uh, strategy. Right. There are rumors that he gave money to Eli Hobea in order for Hobea to switch over to the Syrian side, stuff like that. We, I mean, we don't know if this is true or not. And obviously there were other factors than money at play, but this is one of the tools in his tool belt. Exactly. So this was sort of his entry into Lebanese politics during these years, but then it really sort of climaxed or it really escalated uh, towards the end of the civil war and with the Taif Accord. You know, he is credited with being one of the sort of necessary figures, What one of these people who really helped pull everything together at Ta'if. Uh, he got all of the MPs, flew them in to Ta'if. He was instrumental in convincing them to accept uh, the deal that was presented to them. And then, and then afterwards, he also flew the MPs in his own personal private jet to Kleat Air Base in Lebanon in order to elect Rene Mouawad. The, the father of uh, current MP uh, Michel Mouawad as president in November of 1989. Mouawad was assassinated 17 days later, but then Hariri facilitated the election of another president, Elias Hrawi, in the Ba'a Valley, also flew the MPs in there so they could elect him. And then Hrawi lived in Hariri's apartment, or an apartment provided by Hariri. And, and Hariri provided him with security and cars and everything administrative staff all of these things that the president would need and supposedly at this time he also started to impress the syrian regime to a very substantial level where uh, according to uh, if you look at uh, nicholas blanford's book on uh, rufi kariri in an interview with the vice president of syria at the time Khadam, uh, he said oh th- this is when the syrian regime first started to seriously consider him for the prime minister's post but they also said well we need to wait until there's elections so it was kind of clear by now that he was not just a billionaire he was someone with big political ambition he was able to pull strings and convince people to do things so he kind of proved his his political uh, value i think to not not only to the saudis but to the syrians as well which is key to his success exactly and to the Lebanese, obviously which would be very important on later in later stages so as you mentioned, we had parliamentary elections. Uh, it was the first parliamentary elections we have in 20 years, since 1972. But obviously it was under student supervision, so it wasn't very free. But just before the elections, we had a huge financial crisis, the devaluation of the lira from 1,150 liras per dollar, per US dollar, to 2,800 lira. Uh, and we had previous devaluations in the late 80s. So the financial situation was really bad. And Omar Karami's government was uh, subjected to a lot of protests and they, uh, he resigned uh, from power in May before the elections and we had the, just a short-term government headed by Rashid Sulah. but just after the elections in which Bahia Hariri, Rafiq's sister, became an MP, Rafiq Hariri was chosen to be the Prime Minister of Lebanon by President Lies Hrewi. And Hrewi was 
very very close to the Syrians so this is how we know that the Syrians were sponsoring Hariri because Hariri was kind of the Syrian regime's man and and, and power he he was the one who asked the Syrian troops to attack Abda Palace to get rid of Michel Aoun in the end of the civil war and he did everything possible to make sure that uh, Lebanon and Syria can work smoothly with under, under under serious patronage during the period. So from 1992, when Hariri became prime minister, to 1998, we considered this his first term, but it's actually three terms because he had three different governments during this time. But this is also the time that he put into place basically what his legacy would become. Exactly. He he came in to the office with like a big plan big vision so many promises um people who were you know following politics uh, during that time tell me that it was kind of a bit surreal you know how much promises and and uh, optimism there was in the air so hariri was saying we will return lebanon to what it was before the civil war a regional hub for trade and commerce a place that is very cosmopolitan especially in terms of like the city the capital beirut and um we will be playing a very important economic role in the future. To do that, we have to have a reconstruction plan that is solid and ambitious, many billions of dollars in investment in infrastructure. But the main component or the trademark policy of Hariri was, in fact, the reconstruction of downtown Beirut specifically. So what happened is that the state created a company, partly owned by the state and partly by private investors. And Hariri was the major shareholder in the in the company. It's called Solidar. Anyone who's been to Lebanon knows about Solidar because all of downtown Beirut is called that. If you want to go to downtown, you tell the service driver Solidar. Yeah, exactly. So basically this company was created and the properties in the whole area were moved to, the, to Solidar. People had to sell their properties to Solidar. Some negotiated and some accepted the very low offers that they were given. And I have to make this disclaimer here because I grew up in this area of the first four or five years of my life. And then we moved to a different place because also this happened. Solidar forced us to sell. But anyway, beyond Solidar itself, Hariri saw like the real estate sector as a sector where money would go in. Uh, so it's a sector for investment. Right, like foreigners or like rich Lebanese uh, who made a lot of money abroad would come and see this city center that is this beautiful crown jewel and want to buy an apartment there. Yeah, exactly. And this is what happened, right? Because we saw all of these Arab rich people coming into Be- in Beirut and buying these flats in downtown Beirut. It was it worked, you know, a lot of people were buying and a lot of people were investing in, in, in real estate development. Under one estimation, during this period of time, we had 90% of Arab money coming in in terms of investment into the sector of real estate. So it kind of succeeded in sucking in all of these, um, all of these capital flows into Lebanon. Also, the government passed several policies to make sure that the real, sector, uh, the real estate sector succeeds, including removing some taxes on housing loans, lifting restrictions on speculation, and leaving rent prices to the market. And all of these things, we see the uh, repercussions today. In terms of economic policy in general, we can say that the Hariri policies followed the neoliberal logic of provide a good environment for business and remove taxes and tariffs that are perceived as obstacles to business and then the private investment will do the rest of the job this was the vision you know we invest only in infrastructure and we let the market do the rest so the first move was opening up trade by reducing tariffs quite dramatically to less than you know what the world trade organization requires so we had a huge trade deficit after that because you could import a lot of things sell them cheap in the market we were importing much more than we were exporting And when you have this kind of policy, 
local producers will have to run out of business because you know much cheaper things are coming uh, from outside and this is what happens uh, happened to a lot of industries here and the Hariri government had a negative attitude towards any kind of industrial um, policy in terms of supporting or subsidizing local industries quite the opposite he the philosophy was why would you produce anything here that is cheaper to import from outside and this is the neoliberal logic to, you know sur- surrendering to the global market and not developing your economy based on potential but based on what's the cheapest thing to do in the global market on the other hand you had the monetary policy which is basically that the central bank does not have a developmentalist role it had the role of controlling inflation and stabilizing the currency before this time the lira was not pegged to the US dollar but it was pegged during this time in the 90s and the central bank was offering treasury bonds for high interest rates and this allowed local banks to you know lend the government money by buying these treasury bonds and make a lot of profits this was kind of the rise of the big profits to be made from Lebanon's debt after the civil war that we talked about a couple of episodes ago when we were discussing the budget and how much we pay for debt and finally we have the big reliance on foreign capital flows money coming in as remittances or foreign aid mostly remittances which form a much bigger share of the gdp than than most other countries um and this was meant to and this still meant to kind of balance out the trade deficit that we have because we're not exporting anything valuable compared to what we're importing then we need to bring in some money uh, to have dollars in the economy and not go basically bankrupt and keep the lira back to the dollar it's it's amazing to me that we're talking about policies from like the mid 90s and and in the late 90s and everything you know 20 years ago and everything just sounds like oh yeah that that describes today exactly especially that these policies failed in the 90s and people knew that by 1998 that the whole plan called horizon 2000 uh, ambitious plan for economic reconstruction failed hariri's policies were just not working we went into a kind of a small recession some people say it's it was a recession that began in 1998 and uh, stayed for 2-3 years but yeah in general our economy was doing bad um, we were going into more and more deficit and the debt to GDP ratio was increasing so it was kind of the moment where people were realizing oh this whole ambitious plan of Rafi Hariri kind of re- rebuilding the country and you know becoming an economic success again uh, is not going to happen okay so Hariri leaves office for a couple of years Salim al-Haas comes in with the, with the government uh, but then we have elections in 2000 and Hariri does really well in them and and he comes back into the office of the prime minister. At this point, there are a lot of changes happening, one of them being the death of Hafsa al-Assad and the succession uh, with uh, Bashar al-Assad coming to power, but a lot of other things as well going on. And we have to take a step back and talk about Hariri's, from this point onward, talk about Hariri's relationship with Damascus. Yeah, so the, the first term of Rafi Hariri came in a moment of rapprochement between Syria and Saudi Arabia and the United States. So this is what kind of allowed Hariri to operate. Uh, he had the Syrian sponsorship. In parallel, the Israeli-Arab peace process was uh, ongoing. There was high speculation that uh, Israel would be integrating in the region again soon. There were no real major tensions between Syria and the Americans over things related to Lebanon at that point. And uh, Hariri was sending a lot of good signals to the Syrian regime. 
Uh, during his first years, he offered many, you know, gifts reportedly to Syrian officials in Lebanon. Uh, one of the indirect gifts that was most valuable was that he funded the campaign of Jacques Chirac, the French presidential candidate who uh, succeeded François Mitterrand. Allegedly. Allegedly, of course, uh, in 1995. But the idea is that Jacques Chirac was much more favorable to the Syrian regime on the issue of Lebanon than his predecessor because he was much more lenient and he, he didn't want to confront the Syrians in this sense. So anyway, this, this we're talking about a period where the relationship was healthy or not healthy, but was positive to a certain extent. Uh, then after Lahoud, Emil Lahoud was elected president in 1998, and the host government that you mentioned was created, we had this anti-corruption campaign against a lot of people in Hariri's entourage. Basically, Hariri were giving out all these contracts for reconstruction and building highways and stuff like that, was accused of a lot of corruption giving out to people who don't deserve it or, you know, uh, things costing us much more than they should. So we had this anti-corruption drive that was stopped by the Syrians later, uh, reportedly, obviously, because um, because it started touching on their own people in Lebanon, like Ghazi Kanaan, who was the head of the Syrian intelligence in Lebanon back then. But this moment was kind of the moment of political tension between Hariri and Syria's people here. It was the first time that he's kind of in confrontation. And during the Hus government, Hariri was working on, you know, expanding his clientelist network, establishing himself as a Sunni political leader, more, more or less, and when he came in 2000 for the for the last term from 2000 2004 uh, the situation was completely different the israeli uh, arab peace process had failed israel withdrew from lebanon in 2000 and some people were like asking why doesn't syria do the same why do we need syria here we had some anti-syrian presence politics growing among especially among christian uh, political communities and Things like the Iraq war, worsened tensions between the, the, the Syrians and the Americans and through them the Saudis. And Hariri was losing friends for a lot of reasons, was losing friends in the Syrian regime. So we had increasing tensions between the two sides until 2004 when the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1559 was passed. And this resolution said, you know, Lebanon should have presidential elections without foreign interference, hinting at Syria, obviously. And uh, Syria should withdraw its troops from, from Lebanon and Hezbollah should give up its weapons. Uh, this was the most controversial UN Security Council resolution on Lebanon that I, that I know of. And Hariri was thought of, you know, as the grandfather of this by the Syrians and by Syria's allies. Because they thought that he was the one who pushed for all of the content of this resolution. Although some people say that Hariri actually did not want the things that were very confrontational with uh, Syria and Hezbollah. This is the time when everything changes. Many different people talk about how fast things, you know, worsened between Hariri and Syria during this period after the resolution was passed. But what we know is that we had a big conflict around Emil Lahoud here. The Syrian regime wanted to renew Emil Lahoud's term unconstitutionally. They wanted to, uh, to amend the constitution in parliament in a way that allows Lahoud to have a second term. Rafi Hariri was against it. He said he was against it. Then he was summoned by Bashar al-Assad. He went to see him. And then one week later, his blog voted for the amendment. So they changed their position. But at the same time, while his blog voted for it, he resigned as prime minister. So he said, you know, take this presidency thing, but I don't want to have anything to do with this. So again, the Syrians put Omar Karame as prime minister to replace Hariri. And it's kind of sad, you know, just 
commenting on this. It's kind of sad that Omar Karami is just the guy that they put when they don't have anyone or something, you know? I, I think there have been a few prime ministers throughout Lebanese history who fulfilled this role. The two times that Omar Karami got the prime minister's office, he was overthrown by because of popular protests, as we'll get to later. But anyway, Hariri opposed the Syrian regime in this. And other people did as well, like uh, Wali Jumlat. And soon after, in February 2005, he was assassinated. Yeah, and, and this was the climax of everything that happened. And th- this is this is something that we have, we have covered in depth. If you if you want to know about the assassination of Rafiq Hariri and the, the aftermath, we, we covered that back in uh, on last season uh, during episode 19. Uh, go back and, and take a listen to that after this if you've not already. But basically, there was just a massive massive car bomb that hit uh, Rafiq Hariri's convoy on February 14th, 2005, killed him, killed 21 other people. Um, it literally shook the city. And obviously it shook the, the political landscape. And, and this caused a lot of things to happen. And, and one of the most immediate things that happened was that it galvanized people into sort of two camps that, that would stay in, in sort of two camps because the way the assassination was seen it was that it was the fault of the Syrians. The Syrians had done this. Now, whether or not they did, we, you know, nobody knows. This is sort of the grand mystery of Lebanese politics. Uh, but at very least, Syrian intelligence and security was so pervasive in Lebanon at the time. I, I think we can say with a very high degree of confidence that at very least the Syrians knew and acquiesced to this. Mm. So we had after his death on February 14th, we had on March 8th, there was a protest that was pro-Syrian, right? Saying thank you to Syria. Thank you for everything that you've done for us. We very much appreciate you. And and this was led by Amal and Hezbollah. And then a week later, you had the March 14th, the counter demonstration, which was massive. The, the March 8th uh, demonstration was massive, but the March 14th uh, demonstration was overwhelmingly massive. And this was the anti-Syrian, like, no, Khalas, this is done. Syrians, you are responsible for this and you need to get out. And at, at this point, the, the, the Syrians really didn't have too much of a choice. Yeah, I mean, it was a moment of, of it was such a sensational moment politically, I mean, and socially to see around, you know, one million people maybe protesting in a country of four million is, first of all, crazy. And then it's such this the, the incredible diversity in the forces that were um, in March 14, the protests and in the movement against Syrian presence at that point was really big. Like people from the left and the right and the center, uh, people who were fighting each other during the civil war, were all behind this new March 14 label against the Syrian regime and its presence in Lebanon. And so this, the, I think this is the beginning point. If we, if we want to start talking about his legacy, this is where things start. And he, he at this point... I, th- I think it's fair to say he ceases to become a man uh, and and he very much becomes this greater idea. Yeah, I mean, immediately after his assassination and in the campaign against the Syrian presence, Rafi Hariri was kind of made, made to look like a saint. Criticizing Rafi Hariri was almost impossible at that point. There was overwhelming, you know, propaganda that said, that talked about how great he was, uh, songs being made, uh, other protests, uh, huge, you know, uh, fancy memorial for him in downtown Beirut. And all of these moves that kind of 
we're pushing in this di- uh, the direction where there's a new hegemony that says you cannot talk about Rafi' Hariri. Rafi' Hariri is the symbol of the, this revolution, which was the Cedars revolution. But obviously, as a politician and as a billionaire, he had a much more complex legacy. Yeah, I, I think th- this whole idea that her is Mr. Lebanon is, is very interesting. Yes, uh, it, it, it was... In, in a lot of ways, a sort of propaganda, they, an anti-Syrian propaganda imagery that, that made this hurry into this larger-than-life character, Mr. Lebanon. But I, I think, you know, just as Lebanon is very much flawed, so so is Hariri. If you if you look and examine his legacy, and this this is a legacy that is very much intertwined with Lebanon's, right? Where we've been talking about like monetary policy and institutions of the state, things that he set up that are still driving us today, sort of like they are flawed and so is he. And so in a very real way, more than beyond just the propaganda of this great Mr. Lebanon that can do no wrong, it is very accurate to call him Mr. Lebanon. Definitely. This guy changed the course of Lebanon's history. This is something that no one can deny. The same legacy that is seen positive by some people, the fact that, you know, he brought Lebanon back on the map, he opened the economy, he did the reconstruction projects, etc. These same things have the positive side and the negative side of them. Yeah, and both of these sides are legitimate. On the one hand, you have this, you have him as the symbol of revitalization and rebirth and rejuvenation after the civil war which is true you, you had all of this money coming in you had all these projects starting up you had this rebuilding uh you know if, even if you consider solidaire uh and the downtown the rebuilding of downtown to ultimately be a bad idea uh, it it is a massive project and it is massively impressive yeah and i think Another side is what Hariri represents. You know, Hariri, the fact that he was not born in any fancy family, that he is kind of a self-made billionaire or self-made businessman who went into Lebanese politics with the vision to transform the country and stuff. This is a big, big change from what we used to have before that, which is basically feudal political families or big landowners uh, being the major politicians in the country. So he represented a new class of people like Najib Ma'ati, Mohammed Safadi, Isam Faris. These people were not part of the political class before Hariri came. So he came in with a bunch of technocrats and businessmen who changed the political scene. And he bulldozed his way into Sunni politics in a, an unprecedented way, you know. Soon after he became a major political figure, we're talking about four years, he got 25 MPs of his allies in, in parliament, you know, independent MPs who are kind of affiliated with Hariri. So... We're talking about a very a very unique and particular political phenomenon. He did something that most historical figures, most politicians cannot do. And this is why we're talking about him in this podcast. But along with these positives, you cannot look at him objectively without recognizing the other side. Definitely. I mean, first of all, although he represented a new class of people coming into politics, this class of people is now the problem that you have in the country. We, The real estate and the bankers are now ruling us. Are we trying to find a way uh, to, you know, make this public knowledge and try to fight against it in one way or another? And we talked about this in the last few episodes, how economic reform is almost impossible today because of how powerful this new class is. And, and also with that, uh, just the corruption that was involved by all accounts 
along with hers money that came in that allowed him to, you know, push into politics in mm. this fantastic way, this monumental way. It, it was a lot of cash behind him. Yeah. And by all accounts, he used that cash in, in just ways that was on, on a much larger scale than anyone before him. Not not that he is the first corrupt person in Lebanon or used cash to get things done in Lebanon. No, that's how things work. But he brought it to a new level. And that is also part of the legacy. So, I mean, and you can definitely argue that this this was necessary in order to finish the Civil War, in order to revamp Lebanon and get it going again. But the fact of the matter is, well, he is the one who did it. So for, for good and for bad. Yeah. But I guess beyond uh, beyond that, part of his major legacy as well is the the impact on the economy that his policies had, specifically in terms of focusing on specific sectors like finance and real estate as opposed to to productive sectors. And this is something that we're also paying the price for today. During the time where Hariri was in, in power, the first term, first three terms, um, there was a big conflict with the labor unions uh, over certain policies related to wages and other things. And Hariri's way of dealing with it was very confrontational. Uh, suppression. He sent the army troops to some some of their actions. He banned demonstrations at some point, and then this ended with an, a much smarter tactic, which is infiltrating the trade unions by creating fake unions and then voting in in executive boards in a way that allowed the political elite uh, to control the general federation of labor that is now considered just an affiliate of Nabih Birri. Um, this was not the case in the nineties. They had a very charismatic left wing and progressive leader, but it was kind of neutralized. And this is also we we have to talk about this as part of Hariri's legacy because if he had a different approach to this, a more inclusive approach towards labor, we would have had a different situation now. Yeah. So I think the the main takeaway that I get if I'm putting all of this together is what I said before. Like, oh, it's it it sounds like what you're describing could be happening today, even though you were talking about the 90s. Hariri put in place these major structural institutions and mechanisms and policies that are still in place today. To me, it seems sort of like, so he was the architect in a certain way of the Lebanese state as it currently is. Uh, He was the one driving the bus and then he was murdered. And to me, it seems as though the bus kept going but now there's nobody at the wheel or there are too many people, too many hands on the wheel. There's nobody who is this larger than life figure. There's nobody who's able to actually steer the bus correctly anymore, or if they were steering it wrong, maybe correct course. And so we are still headed in the same direction with these same policies that, as you said, back in the nineties, weren't exactly working too well. Uh, And now we're 20 years later and they're still not working too well to the point where Lebanon maybe going like seriously off the road over a cliff whatever metaphor you want to use I totally agree I mean uh, he was the mind that was coordinating this whole project without this mind these same actors small actors that he installed for example he brought uh, Riyad Salemi as a central bank governor he used to work with him brought Fahad Sanyura as finance minister later on he became prime minister these people who are kind of leading the Hariri uh, economic legacy today uh, are here, but Hariri is not. So there's no coordinator of this of this process happening, which means that, as you're saying, that it's it's not gonna be like going in a very clear or uh, constructive direction. But my issue is with this is that it never worked anyway. 
um, even if Hariri was still here, uh, these policies were not working when he was uh, doing them. They will not work today. And I think part of what we can learn from the legacy of Hariri is that uh, this is not how you can run a country, uh, not after a war or not ever, and this kind of economic policies and this approach to a rebuilding country after war does not really work. And to also to understand how much, you know, how much money can affect politics in a situation like the Lebanese one, where a billionaire came out of nowhere and suddenly became the most important political figure in the country, but also how uh, limited this capacity is in, in such a complex situation with a lot of people trying to, you know, have their share of the pie or influence the destiny of the country. And and so on, on this note, I think this is something that we should all just keep in mind uh, this week as we uh, remember Rafiq Hariri uh, and, and his assassination 14 years ago on Thursday. Yeah, there, there is a, a reason that this man is remembered and revered so many years after his death. And for our listeners who want to have more information about things related to his policy, I will put up a couple of links in the description of the episode that would help explain things related to his economic policy and uh, a couple of books about Hariri that uh, we read and appreciated. Um, that's all for this week. We will have a break next week. We won't come be coming on Monday. But the Monday after that, expect a new episode on a topic that will be a surprise. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.